Well, um, as always, I invite you to follow along in your Bible. I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, it's an easy one to find. It's the first book of the Bible, and it's just the sixth chapter. It's not even page 6 of my Bible, if that helps you at all. It's really, it's really quick to find. Uh, we're going to talk about Noah in a moment. But before we do, I just want to, just want to kind of recap. Where, where have we been uh, as, as, a, as a church for the last few weeks? We're, we're in this series called First Things First, and the whole idea of the series is well, Christmas is coming up here pretty soon, which is, which is powerful, and many of us have fond memories of Christmas. And then after that, like the next big kind of religious moment is Easter, and uh, we, we, we've all come into the faith somewhere in the middle of the story, but even Christmas is the middle of the story. And what you would find, if we went all the way back to the first things, what you would find is that God has been working towards this plan from the very beginning of time, that his, his character hasn't changed. And when we understand the first things and we put them in the right, place, then like the Christmas story just comes alive. Easter comes alive. Your salvation moment when someone said to you, well, someone paid your debt on a cross. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to. It makes sense when you look all the way back and see that, well, God promised Adam that if you do this, death will come, that death was a requirement of it. And so we just want to, we're, we're, we're going all the way back into Genesis because we want to get first things first and put things in order so that when we experience the rest of the story or when we consider uh, our, even our own conversion experience, we, we put it in the right place. Where have we been so far? Well, we looked at creation. Uh, that was a, that's this cool moment right at the beginning of Jesus where, where, uh, God, or excuse me, at Genesis where God just says, let there be light and, He's happy with it. Let there, let there be waters and he's separate and he creates each day. He creates this, this world and then he creates mankind and he says, I want, I'm going to make man in my image. And he says, he's doing something different in humanity than he did with any other animal, any other creature in this world that you and I are made in the image of God. And therefore that's our value. That's our worth. And when he was done with that, whether you feel like God likes you or not, when he was done making humanity, he sat back and he said for the first time, it is very good. See, if we begin our understanding of God as like he's an angry, capricious God wagging his finger at us, we've missed already. We, 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 if that was what you were taught in church, I apologize on behalf of all pastors and all churches everywhere. That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture begins with he creates humanity and he sits back. He's like, that is very good. I'm very proud of the work that I've done right here. This is going to be great. And we were meant to work and operate in the image of God, be his representatives in all of creation. And we see that God, he, he runs towards chaos and he makes order and he makes purpose where no one had invented things like math and light. God's just like, I've got this idea giraffe. And he's like, he loves it. He just invents off of the top of his head where there's chaos and there's brokenness and there's just, the, the scripture says void. It's just like, I don't know. It's, I don't know. A big question mark in this guy. He creates order and purpose. If you feel like your life is a big void, a big black hole of chaos and purpose, purposelessness, uh, then we serve a God and we're talking about a God who is kind of attracted to that state of being. He's attracted to move into the chaos and then put order in its place. But Adam and Eve, uh, they chose chaos instead of order. They were meant to subdue the serpent and subdue all of creation, but the serpent started questioning God's motives, started questioning God's character, started questioning God's consequences, and they got into their head and said, you know, is it really going to be as bad as God says? Maybe God's holding back from you something that's better than what he's already given you. And Adam and Eve said, yeah, I think so. And in doing so, when they eat the fruit, they challenge God and God's authority, and they give up their rightful position to subdue the planet. 
planet and have dominion over it. And so because of that, you and I exist in a world that is no longer perfect. You and I exist in a world that is broken. You and I exist in a world where spouses can cheat on other spouses. We, we exist in a world where someone can have devastating consequences. We exist in a world, this is so foreign to, to the, you know, the biblical uh, perfect uh, at the beginning. We exist in a world where our loved ones die. And that seems as natural as can be. Death seems as natural as can be. But the original order was that death wouldn't be there. And we shouldn't be dying, and yet we are. And so we exist in a world that has both grace and consequence. We exist in a world where God isn't finished. He hasn't, he hasn't given up on what he started, but he is one who's going to hold accountable and put you know, uh, order and justice back in its place. So what I want to do today, uh, we've been reading through Genesis, kind of getting all of that information. I just want to look at Noah's ark for a second. Noah, the flood story, the ark, it starts in Genesis 6, and I just want to say a couple of things about it. First, if you taught Sunday school at Fellowship Baptist Church about 25 years ago. I am so sorry what I did to you. Uh, it was probably my first time or second time to ever go to church. I am like uh, 9, 10, 11 years old. I'm brought to church, and I'm in a Sunday school room. And, and this woman, God love her, uh, she, she wanted to teach us about Noah, and I just wasn't having it. It just did not make sense to me. I was skeptical from the word go. Are you telling me, are you serious, that a man built a boat because God told him to, come on, right? Are you telling me that Noah existed in a world where it had never rained before and now it's going to rain? I questioned everything about it and I'm just, I apologize for all. I would raise my hands like, you sure it's two of them? Like how big was this boat, do you think, lady? Uh, and, and I would give her a hard time. If you are beginning this, like, this lesson with me, this message with me, and you're like, okay, Noah, well, I'm going to go to like myth mode, right? I'm going to turn this off. You have some objections to it. I was you. Okay, and so I just want to begin by outlining that there are some objections uh, that people have with, with Noah. One, one is uh, just the age of the people at the time. We haven't really talked about the age of Adam and the age of Cain, uh, how, how old they got, but, but these people were living a really, really long time. Noah will die around 900 years old, okay? And so that is just a lot longer than, than we live at all, okay? Uh, and so you, you as a rational human being may begin by saying, well, you can just look at that age of people, and that doesn't line up. Uh, I just want to begin by answering that by saying, I, I, my faith begins with, I believe uh, the hero of the story showed up, he chose to die, and then he came back to life. I believe that Jesus is really alive, so I really don't have a hard time understanding or believing that you know people could live longer than that. It seems to be that at the beginning of time, uh, we were supposed to live eternally, uh, and death is the most foreign concept, not life. And so the fact that they would live 900 years isn't the surprising thing. It's that they didn't live 901 years. That should be surprising if you're reading this from the beginning. But that's, that's an objection some people have. Uh, another objection some people are like, I can't wrap my head around it, uh, is this idea of uh, Nephilim. That's a word that we'll look at here in just a moment. Like, who were the Nephilim? What were they doing? I'll just be honest with you. I don't, I don't know. Okay, uh, I can. I have some guesses. There's a lot of conjecture. I could probably piece it together, but at the at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand here and say I know what the Nephilim are. When I was about 12 years old, I've now been in church for a little while. I had a preacher stand on the stage and say, "You know who the Nephilim were?" I'm like, "Who?" They says Neanderthals. I was like, "Really? Are you sure?" He was sure. He had like a picture of a Neanderthal. He said, "See that? That's a Nephilim." No proof of that in the Bible. I have no idea where he came up with that. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's not. I don't know what the Nephilim are. 
are. And so when we get to something we don't know, we can piece together bits that we do understand. Uh, but at the end of it, uh, we, we just are left with, we'll get to heaven. We'll ask uh, Noah, like, hey, who were those people? Uh, and the third and final thing is this. is like, was there ever really a flood that covered the world? This is fascinating to me. It seems like we would remember something like that, right? Like we remember like people crossing the Atlantic Ocean, finding the new world. We have it in our history. It seems like we, we have like the Battle of Troy in our history, which is like half myth, half real. Like we have a lot of old stuff in history. It seems like if there was a flood that covered the entire world, we would have something of that in our history. Well, it turns out the flood story is probably the most agreed upon myth of all the civilizations in the world. Every civilization that has ever lived seems to have this story like at the beginning, before history was being written, there was a flood that just covered the world. Uh, the Sumerians had a flood story. The Babylonians had a flood story. The Akkadians had a flood story. The Greeks even had a flood story. I was reading one. The Native Americans here in the United States, or I guess North America, it, they didn't care about the United States, but in North America, the Native Americans had a flood story their version of Noah, his name was, <clears throat> hang, hang on with me, uh, Wena Bazuhu. Anybody want to, you better have a name a child? <laughs> You're looking for a name for your kid. May I suggest Wena Bazuhu? This is, this is great. All of these myths, all of these stories of a great flood agree that there was a flood that covered the entire world. All of these stories agree that just a, a small remnant of humanity lived. Um, all of the, Med uh, the um, Mesopotamian ones, the Sumerians, which is the oldest Babylonians, Akkadians, they all agree that there were 10 generations before the flood. Bible, scripture, says that there were 10 generations before the flood. Noah is the 10th generation, and then a flood hits. There's like agreement on that. What they disagree on is very interesting to me, is that all of the Middle Eastern flood myths say this, that the gods were looking down at humanity, looking down at how populated we became, how many of us there were, and they were, they were scared of us. All of them say this. They were scared of us. And so the flood was to punish humanity for spreading. But when we get to Noah and the flood story, it's the exact opposite. God isn't mad that humanity has spread. In fact, he commanded it to Adam. He's kind of a big fan of population growth. It's not God is mad at humanity spreading and is afraid of it. It's that God is angry that the image of God is no longer representing him. It's, it's violent and um, uh, uh, more conflict, and so it is, it is judgment. Okay, uh, let's, let's try to bite off more than we can chew with the Noah flood story. I'm going to go uh, probably, this could be a whole series. I'm going to go a little bit faster than uh, normal to try to get from the beginning then. I want to make a couple of points. If you are... Uh, really uh, interested in Bible study, this is going to be a lot of fun for you. If you're in here and you're like, hey, I'm just like, I'm barely checking this place out. I, I don't know yet. Let me just like put it on the bottom shelf. Um, your circumstances, this is where we'll end today. Your circumstances, uh, they don't dictate whether or not you're going to worship God or rebel against him. You don't choose God because your life was going great and you won the lottery. And you don't run away from God because your truck broke down on a way to a retreat and you had to switch trucks in the middle. That's a personal story that happened to me this weekend. And I had to switch campers. It was a whole thing. It's so stressful. I don't, I don't run away from God because my circumstances stink. And I don't choose God because my circumstances are good. At the end of the Noah story, the circumstances were bleak. And they chose to worship God and they chose to rebel against God. 
bad. It had nothing to do with their circumstances. You and I would be wise if we just stopped blaming our circumstances for our relationship with God and just choose him or be honest with ourselves about why we're not choosing him. But let's, let's open it up. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. It says this, it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took their wives, uh, any, uh, they, excuse me, they took as their wives any they chose. Uh, the sons of God most likely are, uh, angels or some, something to that effect. Um, and they look down at humanity and our girls are cute. Okay. So yay, humanity, we make pretty people. Uh, and so they took women as their wives. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Uh, I, when I was coming up, someone would point to that and be like, God promised we'll only live to be 120 years old. He, that may be part of this. If it is that, this is at least a double entendre because the most literal understanding of this is that in 120 years, the flood's going to come. As, as we read the rest of this, uh, he sees he sees humanity and what it's becoming, and he says, my, my spirit will not dwell with man forever. Um, there's, a, there's a lot uh, there, but we'll, we'll keep going. It says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so uh, the sons of God had children with the daughters of man, and the, the offspring is what is called Nephilim, uh, and that just literally means the fallen ones. And so there's still a big question mark about who they are. But there's something about this Nephilim that is called and chaos in the world. And so violence comes out. And it says uh, that this is where the mighty men of old are from. And so a lot of people look at it and be like, uh, maybe, maybe some of these myth stories where there's like a, a legend of some mighty hero, maybe he was one of them, but we'll, we'll keep going because it's not really important for what we're going to cover today. Verse 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. See, what, what God's problem is with, with the world at this point isn't that people are spreading, isn't even that Nephilim exists or whatever it is. It's that the intentions of the thoughts of man's heart are just evil continually, the intentions of his heart. Interesting thing about that word intentions right here, it's the same word that is used in Genesis 2 when God is forming man, and it says that he formed man in his image. He, he bestowed on mankind intentions. He had, he had a desire that he would rule in God's name. And what, what God sees here is that the intentions that you and I create or mankind is creating is that we just choose evil, like constantly, continually. We, we could go good, but we choose evil. If, if you're like me, uh, I'll just be transparent. Maybe some of you are better than me. If you're like me, sometimes I struggle like driving down the road to choose good or evil when someone cuts me off. Like I, it's, it's a real struggle in my mind and in my heart. Sometimes I struggle when someone like out of the blue just starts yelling at me and I haven't fortified myself for that. Like I could, I could flip a script and go, go like pre-Jesus Jesse on them really fast and I have to kind of pause because I can either choose evil, right, and, and you know, get a, get a warrant or something, or I can choose good. And the, the problem is that we have both natures in us, but at this stage, mankind is choosing evil continually. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What happens is, is that when the image bearers of God, the idols that God placed on this planet, you and I, 
are choosing not to represent him, it, it does, it's not just like, oh, I wish they wouldn't do that. It literally breaks his heart. It grieves God's heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. He is about to uh, uh, wipe the slate clean. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What a great, like, hidden little verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There is nothing about Noah that is special. There's nothing about Noah that, like, you know, he, 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 you know, God owed him anything. That it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so, and so what we're going to see is that God's desire in the flood is that he's going to wipe the slate clean. Some, sometimes we think like, you know, wouldn't it just be, have been easier for God to just like clean everything off the planet and just restart with a new Adam and a new Eve? This is sort of an experiment of what that might look like. These are the generations of Noah. Noah, by the way, the name just means comfort or rest. So it's kind of a, a prophecy built into his name that this man, his parents, uh, thought, you know, uh, he's going to be a rest for people. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The rest of the generation is running away from God. He seems to be the only one who still has an active worship with God. It says that Noah walked with God. It's the same phrase that's used of Adam and Eve when, when God walked in the forest, that, 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 uh, he, he, they, he has a relationship with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, I love this. He named his first son Shem, which in Hebrew just means name. It's kind of like if you have a dog and you're like, I don't know what to name him. Dog, right? You're like, hey, dog, come here. And you just like, get over here. He has this son. He's like, what do I name him? Ah, name. Hey, boy, <laughs> come here. Uh, he named his first son name. Ham means hot, which I guess he had a fever. And Japheth means, uh, uh, I didn't write it down. It's slipping my mind. I'll tell you, uh, I'll remember for the second service. And it says in verse uh, 11, now the earth, it's repeating again, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. The problem isn't the people. The problem isn't that God hates the image bearers of himself all of a sudden. It's the problem is that the image bearers are choosing violence and corruption. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God lets Noah know what the plan is. Hey, Noah, could you imagine, by the way, you're like, you're like, 400 years old, 500 years old. You've been living your life this whole time. Every, all you've been doing for the last 500 years is worshiping God the best you can. Nobody else around you is worshiping God. And then all of a sudden you get a voice from heaven. Noah. And you're like, oh, yes. Uh, what's going on? I've got this plan, Noah. I'm really sick of all the violence and all the corruption. Sorry, God. I don't, I don't know what to do about that. Don't worry about it, Noah. I've got this. I've got a plan. Okay, what's your plan, God? I'm just going to wipe the slate clean. For the last 500 years, Noah had uh, business in the market. He had friends next door. His relatives are alive. He's got, he's got his parents and his grandparents. They're alive. Uh, they're all around him. And God is saying, I'm about to wipe the slate clean. We're just going to do away with it. That has to be a gut-wrenching moment for our boy Noah. Uh, we'll skip a few verses. It goes into, he, God says, hey, I want you to build an ark. Here's how big it is and, and all of these things. We'll go down to verse 17 and he, here he outlines the rest of the plan. He says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God says, I'm going I'm to wipe everything out, but I'm going to establish a covenant with you. Uh, interesting piece of theology right here. Uh, God's anger with humanity is that it's violent and they're killing each other. His response to it is to speed up the consequences of what was already going to happen. One interesting thing you'll see about God, uh, and, and you may want to be mindful of this, uh, in all, from Genesis, you can see this in Romans. It, it, Romans 1 begins with this idea that what God tends to do in his judgment is rapidly progress the natural consequences of what was already going to happen. There's a moment in the New Testament where Jesus is walking past the fig tree and he's having kind of a bad day. He's about to go flip the tables or he just finished flipping the tables. I can't remember the order. And he walks past this fig tree and he, like, he wants to get a snack out of it. And the fig tree is barren. It has no figs on it. It's, it's a tree that is otherwise healthy, but it's not producing any figs. And, and scripture says that he curses the fig tree and he walks away. He walks into town. And later that day, the disciples make a note as they're walking back. The tree is like old and withered and shriveled up at the end of the day. Jesus is just, he didn't just like curse it and fire came down on it. He, he cursed it in a way that it just rapidly progressed to its death. In Romans, what we see is that people are doling their minds and they don't want to trust God. They don't want to know God. They want to harden their hearts. And what God does, he does it to Pharaoh as well. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And when God is ready to judge Pharaoh, what does he do? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God goes ahead and doles the minds and doles the conscience. When God judges, when God gives you the consequences of what is about to happen, it's not a capricious judgment. It's usually a rapid progression to what was already going to happen. Let's go ahead and feel the full brunt of all the violence in the world. If the image of God continues this, they're going to wipe themselves out. I'm just going to go ahead and wipe them out. But he says to Noah, I've got this plan. I'm going to create a covenant. This is the first time the word covenant appears in the Bible. Noah's got to be a cover what? I don't, he may not even understand what he's promising. God promises a covenant to Noah and then doesn't tell him what it is. He's like, just get on the boat. I'll tell you later. Uh, we'll get uh, down to uh, chapter 7. So says in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He's like, Noah, you've been worshiping me for a while. Take your family into that ark that you've built for the last 120 years. It's about to start raining. What's rain? Don't worry about it. So it's a thing, okay? Just, just get into the boat. You go in there, and then, and then he's going to close it. For the rest of the chapter, we get all of the time of the rain. We get all of the time of what's going to happen. But God is completely silent. Um, does anybody know off the top of your head, this is a quick quick uh, trivia, how long it rained? You know? Yes, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Everybody like, yeah, with confidence will say it later. 40 days. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. But once, once the world, it says, it says in chapter 7 that, that the tops of the mountains were covered with water. It, it just rained. Now, now, when I was 10 years old, I questioned that poor Sunday school teacher. I'm like, really? 40 days of rain? It should be 400 years of rain to cover the world. I didn't, I didn't think rain could do that until Hurricane Harvey comes. And like a hurricane just stops on top of my house and your house for 36 hours, and it rained over six feet, I think it was, five feet. Nederland, Texas right now holds the world record for most amount of rainfall in a single weekend. Yes, thank you. That's good. That's good. And I think my house is right in the midst of it. We had homes. Some of you had homes. You went to homes that the water was over the tops of the house, right? You couldn't see bridges, right? 
That was 36 hours worth of rain. What would happen if it did that for 40 days and 40 nights? I'm not actually surprised that it can cover the whole planet, okay? Uh, It covers the whole planet. Noah and his family spent, if you add up all the time, it kind of is nebulous because you have to do the math, but if you add up all the time, uh, it is about 53 weeks on that boat. It is 378 days that his family spent on that boat. God is silent the entire year and a week. All 53 weeks, God and his family, or Noah and his family, are on a boat in the middle of an ocean enduring rain. What, What did that sound like? I bet, I bet the first couple of hours is really loud. A lot of rain, a lot of thunderstorms, a lot of knocking. Hey, guys, uh, it's getting a little deep out here. Can you do something? Can't do anything. God closed the ark. Can't do a thing. Hey, Noah, remember I gave you that goat? Uh, you owe me. Yeah, I guess we're going to wash that debt away. Uh, and then, you know, after a while, it gets quiet. After a while, 40 days and 40 nights of raining, the rain stops. You spend a month and some change in the darkness of a boat. You you never get to get out on the top of the boat. It's a big box, the ark. You're on the inside, and it's dark. The last thing you remember is God told you, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your family, but y'all get on the boat. I'll tell you later. 40 days turns into 80 days. 80 days, 120 days. You've been on there three months. Your kids are like, no, are you sure you heard God right? Your wife is like, I'm telling you, if that goat does that one more time, I'm going to get rid of him. Your entire year is just feeding and watering the animals and keeping them alive, smelling them. How do you get the manure out? How do you take care of all this? They've got to, they've got to have a whole system. But, but how long does it take before you lose hope? Before you start to question, like, I'm almost 600 years old. I'm too old for this. I don't even like fishing. I, I, did God say that? It's silence. Noah has not spoken a single word in the entire Bible yet. We have no idea what he's thinking, what he's doing, but it had to have been incredibly difficult. Have you ever gone through a season, hear me, have you ever gone through a season where you remember God promised you a thing and then one week turned into two, who turned into a month, who turned into two months, and you're like a half year in, you're like, okay, I had so much faith six months ago, but I'm, I'm needing to hear from God here pretty soon. Noah waited 53 weeks before he heard anything. Genesis chapter 7, verse 22. How are we doing with this flood, God? Let's check in. Verse 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Oh, it's a successful flood. Okay. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So after, after everything died, another 150 days passed before we end our 53 weeks. Um, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. That idea that God remembered uh, is not to imply that God forgot. Okay, so let's, let's the, the idea of someone remembering a thing, uh, to remember a covenant, to remember a promise, is it's time for me to act on it. Noah, Noah and his family were just like bobbing, like a little, little top on top of the water. And for 53 weeks, God is just like carefully, meticulously, like making 
ensure everything is wiped out. The entire creation has to be remapped at this point. There's a, even ge- geological evidence that there's this, there's this band in the geological record that is universal around the world. And then people who believe in the flood is like, yeah, it's probably a national or a international flood or a worldwide flood. And it says that God remembered Noah. He's like, okay, I've done my work here, and now it's time for me to get back to my plan with Noah. Let's go to verse 13. In the 601st year, that is Noah's 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry, sweet, it is, it is dry land. Uh, could you imagine how f- fresh that air smelled after getting off that nasty dank boat uh, for a year of just manure smells? In the, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, this is the first time God speaks in the last 53 weeks. The last thing Noah heard God say was, hey, Noah, you get on that boat. I'm closing the door. Yes, sir. God and Noah obeyed. 53 weeks of silence. Hey, come off that boat. I got, I got something to say. God says to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. Just get everything out of that boat. And Noah's like, yeah. His wife was like, get out of here. I hate that goat. Birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God is reestablishing what he said to Adam, Right? He created the animals, be fruitful and multiply. He creates Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Noah, get everything off the boat and all you crazy kids, get out there, be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. They got out and they did what God said. What do you do? When you have a brilliant aha moment, you haven't heard from God in a year, and he finally speaks a new word of life to you, you smell that fresh air, what do you do if you are in a new creation and you are the only living humans around, you and your family, what do you do? I don't know what I would do. I think, I think I'd probably like maybe go for take a bath first. Uh, uh, here's what Noah does. Then Noah, he built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings at the altar. Noah decides to worship, uh, and it's the first time since the Garden of Eden that 100% of humanity is sitting around the same altar, worshiping the same God together. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He, he looks at mankind, he looks at Noah, and he says it's still there. It's still evil in your heart. The intentions are still there from your youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Uh, God is like, you know, we're, we're going to start things anew. But there's still, there's still a little hint in you as Noah worship. You worship when you have a breakthrough with God. And I'll quickly uh, read the next two passages. Uh, chapter 9, down in verse 8. Remember, a, hundred, uh, a, a year and some change ago, God said, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your sons. Great. What is it? I'll tell you later. They haven't heard from him yet. Here it is. 
Verse 8 says this, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I'm, I'm making something new. Uh, I'm, I'm going to make a promise to you. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters by, of, of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God's like, I'm not going to do this again. We're not going to have a flood. We're not going to go through the, You're not going to have to go through this. Humanity will not have to go through this. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you uh, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You know, if you, if you put your children in our children's department, or if you yourself went to VBS, at some point you had like the felt board and there's like Noah's Ark. And it's like, oh man, look at all those animals. It's so cute, right? There was death. There was destruction. There was like, there was a problem. And God, God is judging everything. That is a really creepy children's story that we all celebrate. It's in my kid's doctor's office that I just like, look, Noah's story in this little giraffe. He's got his head out the boat. He's waving at everybody. It was, it was terrifying. And in every image, there's a rainbow in the image. Why is there a rainbow in the image? Because scripture says that the sign of the covenant, the token that God uses as the, the, the covenant sign is that he puts a bow in the clouds, a rainbow. The word literally is the same word as like a war bow. So if you're an archer who goes to war, uh, and, and you're like, I'm just going to retire from wartime, you hang it on the wall. When, when, uh, the promises is that when you would see the rainbow, Noah, like every time it rains, it had never rained before this point. Now it rains all the time. Uh, he sees a rainbow in the sky. It reminds him that my God, he has hung his war. He's no longer going to make a war against humanity. So here's the question. Does this fix the problem that Adam and Eve started with? I mean, it seems like it should, right? If you wipe out all of the problem people, all of the Nephilim, whatever they were and however they were a part of it, all of the people who are running from God, and you wipe out everybody who ever made bad decisions, you wipe out all the debt, you wipe out all the crime, and you just start with one really good person and his family, it should work out, shouldn't it? It just didn't. Because our problem is deeper than just the people around us. The problem is in us. Uh, the last passage I'm going to read before we land the plane is chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Then uh, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark with Shem, which is, hey boy, uh, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And everybody who read this the first time be like, oh, those Canaanites, we don't like them. But we're Americans and Gentiles. We don't really fully grasp that. But Ham is where the Canaanites come from. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah, verse 20, began to be a man of the soil. He is now 600 some odd years old. And he decides, you know what I'm going to do in this new world? I'm going to be a gardener like Adam. He's a man of the soil. And you know the first thing that Adam plants, or Noah plants? He plants a vineyard. You know what vineyards grow? Grapes. You know what grapes can turn into? Noah is about to party, y'all. He is so stressed out. It says in verse 21, he drank of the wine and he became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. He gets so hammered in this first day. He worshiped God, and he gets so hammered. He's just like, he passes out drunk and naked. The whole family uh, contextually probably was drinking with him, um, but he's asleep in his tent. Now, Ham, uh, who we already know is a problem because he's the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
You know, in, in the story of Adam and Eve, this is, this is a callback to them. The story of Adam and Eve, they were naked and not ashamed, and then they were naked and ashamed. And now Noah is naked in his tent, and his son comes in to point to his shame. There's some kind of, everybody agrees that there's some kind of innuendo here. There's some kind of uh, read between the lines thing, but it's so old that nobody can agree on what to read between the lines. But something is happening right here, because Ham goes in, sees his naked dad, and just makes fun of him. Uh, and then he calls his brothers and is like, hey, come look at dad. He <laughs> won't believe it. That sucker is naked. Let's all make fun of him. Then uh, it says in verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. They chose not to shame dad. They chose not to look. They showed dad dignity and they went ahead and covered him. Uh, when Noah awoke from his wine, that is when he sobered up and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Could you imagine like the first argument out, off the boat is because you drank too much and your son made fun of you. Something kind of crazy happened and you pronounce a curse on him. The Bible will go ahead and outline the rest of this, that the curse sticks. Canaan is cursed the rest of its existence. Canaanites exist until about 700 BC and Romans wiped them out, but they were cursed the whole time. He also said, blessed be the Lord. He turns, he's like, thank you God for these two good boys right here. Shem, hey boy, thank you for boy. <laughs> and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Verse 28, last verse we'll read. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. That sucker lived a long time. All the days of nowhere were 950 years. And most of us as Americans were like, that's weird. But we're also wondering, if we're reading this from the very beginning, we're wondering, but did we fix death? Have we fixed death yet? And the answer is no. And he died. It's a really sad ending that the persistence of sin exists. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's close quickly with this. Uh, your circumstances don't dictate whether you're going to be a follower of God or a rebel of God. Uh, the, the story of Noah proves to us that that inclination that we believe that if we could just get rid of all of our problems, we would be right with God. It is untrue. It is a lie. Noah literally had every possible problem wiped off of the face of the planet, and he steps off the boat, and still there's a problem. Because our problem, unlike Adam and Eve, is not outside of us. Our problem is that the intentions of our heart are evil from our very youth. We have a sin nature, and we need a rescuer. We need a comfort. Every new beginning requires a choice to honor God or to rebel against him. We are capable of inventing new evils from scratch because we inherited this skill, this trait from Adam. It's, it's what we do. But Christ is the new Adam, and he's a better Noah. Christ is our comforter. He is our rescuer. He is the one who, who uh, uh, won over death. He is the, the rescuer, and in him we can creatively worship at every new stage. Noah had to invent a new way to worship God because they could no longer get to the altar that God had made at the garden. Interesting little uh, bit before we end. Uh, the first altar ever made in the Old Testament is when Noah made this altar because where else is he going to worship God? The garden is gone. What am I going to do? Let me ask you a question. When you get out of your brokenness, when you get out of your 53 weeks of darkness and you haven't heard God for a while and you're just hanging on to the sliver of a promise, when you get to that point and you are then rescued, are you ready to rebel? Or are you ready to build an altar and worship him?
You have a choice. And in Christ, we choose, we choose hope. He's a better rescuer. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll watch the, the cue together. Father, we come to you this morning. Um, we come to you in, in the realest parts of our humanity and know um, we're, we're, we're not going to measure up without you. For all have sinned and fall short of your glory. We, we all wander away, and, and we need hope. We need rescue. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is a better Adam and a better Noah. Lord, may we, uh, as the people of Carpenter's Way, may we put more firmly, uh, or maybe even for the first time, put our faith in the name of Jesus and walk with our head up. As we walk out of the dark seasons of the soul, uh, may we choose worship over rebellion uh, and stop blaming our circumstances for our good or our bad. Let's look to you for our hope and find that you are our rescuer. Thank you for these stories and that in them we see uh, the trueness of humanity. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.